0: Well, uh, welcome to Mount Ellison Middle School, if this is your first time here. Uh, We're glad you're here. I'm very glad we're not in the gym, because that was our plan originally. And um, we were going to do that for a couple months. And then Kirsten and I came, and the dean of students said, you need to see the cafeteria, to which I said, no, we don't. And um, I'm glad I was wrong, because this is much better, really a lot better. So thanks to all of you who are helping us get set up. It's, um, it's, it's going to be fun. That's the way I'm going to give you a little bit of an announcement at the end. But uh, this, is, this is neat. I mean, there's a lot going on here, a lot of moving parts, and we're just glad that you're, you're willing to be uh, with us. So what we're going to do, I'm going to pray for us. And then scripture-wise, I it'll be on the screen, so we'll do it that way. And um, and we'll, I'll move the clicker along. I also printed out on the back behind the TV if you don't want to look at the screen. If you just want to look at the verses, you can do it that way as well. I printed those out that follow along the screen. And then in addition, in the announcements, I did a little outline with some questions in the back. So there's a couple different ways you can follow along. I'll be flipping around through um, the Bible, some particularly in the Old Testament. If you're curious about what those references were, I've got them written up here. You can just come take a picture uh, afterward, and um, yeah, we'll keep you up to speed that way. I know some people like to study throughout the week and, and know what we studied, so I'll have all that for you. So let me pray for us. Lord, we're so grateful to be in this place, to be worshiping, to have time to study your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move through us, that we may know your presence, that you may feed us on your word. It's what we live on. It's what our souls need. I pray that you would help us to focus and receive your gift this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Luke. We'll be in Luke for a little while longer. Uh, Some of you may know that they think that Luke was a doctor. Uh, he probably was. They, they make this assessment by some of the medical terms that he used. It doesn't guarantee he was a doctor. Occasionally I use medical terms when I speak, so it doesn't guarantee, but uh, it's likely. We know that he was meticulous. We know that he wanted to get an organized account, and we also know at the time he was writing that there were some other accounts out there, so he, ha- he wasn't the first one but he wanted to set down an orderly account. So one of the questions might be, why did he write this one? Why did he write it at all, if there were other accounts? And then the difference between when the events happened, which were, say, 30 AD, and when he wrote, which is probably, and we don't know for sure, but somewhere in the 60s, so about 30-some years later, things change. So think if you were writing about events from 30 years ago, you might change some things based on what questions would be now or what might not have been understood or things like that. So he's writing to an audience that he already knows that Christianity has spread outside of just Israel. So he knows that people who follow Jesus may or may not know the different uh, customs. So he, he's aware of that. He's also aware that that uh, accounts circulate or otherwise he wouldn't have mentioned that there are many other ones so and he's also aware that that some of the original people that were there aren't here anymore they're they're with the Lord so that's kind of where he's writing and we jump into a story that is in Luke chapter 7 it's after we talked about John the Baptist um, last week and there were miracles he's risen someone from the dead in Nain it's somewhere in Galilee. I, I didn't feel like I could comfortably say where exactly this happened. Some of the other events were clearer. There are several events in Capernaum. That one is it's an interesting. They've excavated some of the the, the uh, ruins there. There's a good chance they know actually where Peter's house was. It's it's pretty fascinating to look into that. But this is somewhere in Galilee. And also to note that. Jesus performed most of his ministry in quite an obscure place. I mean, it would be like going between Madison Heights and Rustburg and Brook Neal, and it's not the middle of everything, especially with, say, Washington, D.C., up the road. It's He spends a lot of time in these quite unimportant areas on the big scope, and it amazes me that the Messiah would choose to do that, and this little story is one of them as well. So... It starts off, and one of the Pharisees asks him to eat, so he goes to the Pharisee's house, and my version says sit down to eat. We know that they didn't sit down. It was more of a reclining kind of thing, so they're at this table, and a couple things to note. With the Pharisees, you have have basically four groups of characters in the Bible background, New Testament background. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we hear of. Sadducees weren't as interested in the scripture, maybe, more part of the ruling power. And then the Essenes, which we don't hear a lot about, they were more spiritual, tried to be a little more separate, um, maybe off to themselves. And then the Zealots. And the Zealots were the ones that, fit number one, was to overthrow Rome and to see the fulfillment of the Messiah through that. So you have four basic groups. Now, just because you're in a group doesn't mean you think the way everyone else in your group thinks. So it, we don't have to lump everyone in together. But the one thing we can say about the Pharisees is they care about the Scripture. Care about the Scripture, and they've got some sense of really trying to live by it. They're not ignoring it. They're, they're really trying to live by it. And you get a whole, you know, range. This guy seems to be in, in the group that is favorable towards Jesus, at least to an extent. So we've got to give him credit for that invites him to eat so there's a little risk involved if you have someone over to your house you've got a fair amount of risk involved with inviting friends we can assume we don't know for sure whether any other pharisees were there but we can assume that probably were we can also assume that it was a large enough house to host this event and then there's an interesting feature it says in 37 behold a woman in the city who was a sinner who knew that Jesus was at table, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil." So picture the scene, and this is different culturally. Um, she's not invited, but she gets close enough to the table. So that, that probably wouldn't happen in our homes, somebody walking off the street and then standing behind your dining room table. It just probably wouldn't happen. Those of you who have traveled to other cultures, I know in Mexico you can sit in a restaurant and it's just not uncommon for people to come right off the street and just ask for money or you know try to sell something and nobody shoes them out really, which is somewhat of a surprise to us. Even restaurants have a little bit more of your sacred bubble over them that no one's supposed to come in unless it's the waiter or waitress. So the houses, they did it differently. I. Not entirely sure why. It might have something to do with the custom of allowing people to come in and, you know, get the scraps off the table, the gleaning idea. I don't really know. It seems odd to me that uh, this woman could even get close enough to the table. But that's, that's what happens. And you could imagine what it was like. So the, the, the invited guests were around the table. There were probably people on the fringes. And we wouldn't do that. I mean, we wouldn't sit there and eat with people just watching. But, but that must have happened, and that's kind of the scenario um, that we're in. But she does something that, that surprises uh, everybody, and she brings this flask of oil, this alabaster, which was what they used to make jars out of, and that it was just the holding case. We don't really know um, what kind of perfume that was in there. But that's what she's doing. And she stood behind his feet, uh, weeping, and began to wash her feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with fragrant oil. So the first thing I want to point out: there are a couple of these incidences in the scripture, and it can be a little bit confusing. So. This one, we don't know exactly when it was, but the study I did said it was maybe like a year before the crucifixion. The other ones happen, and they're in in Mark 26 and and I mean Matthew 26 uh, and Mark also records it, where it's right in the week before Jesus dies, and one of them's at Simon the Leper's house, and it's an unnamed woman who anoints his head. So that's one scenario. And then also that same week, Mary in the home of Martha uh, anoints his feet and, and does a similar thing, but it's different. We know who she is, and we know where they are in Martha's house, and we know it's the week before Passover, I mean, before the crucifixion. So there's three different ones of these. So this is the first one chronologically that shows up, and so she she does the oil thing. Now, oil to us, we have perfume. We're familiar with it, but I don't know that it carries quite the uh, significance in our culture, the oil. So what I thought I'd do is read a little bit from what the Old Testament, when God sets up this anointing oil, because if you want to learn about someone, there was a quote that I, I read to you last two or three weeks ago that said something about Um, not despising uh, the Old Testament law just because its work is finished. I don't know if you remember that. So when we read some of these laws and the things that people had to do when sin occurred, it seems quite cumbersome to us, and there's a lot of killing of animals and things like that that we might think it's not pleasant to be through, to going through, and so when we look at what was going on in the temple, when you read the Old Testament, it, it's pretty intense, a lot of it, and it takes a long time to go through the process of going through these rituals, but one of the things that, that, that is in there talks about oil, and so I just thought I'd, I'd let you uh, hear a little bit of it, and says, um, he said, take, uh, take spices and put sweet-smelling cinnamon and sweet-smelling cane and some other things, and mix it together, and this becomes your holy oil, and he says, and you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, this is your holy anointing oil, and it shall not be poured on men's flesh, and you should not do other things with it, it's holy, and shall be holy to you, whoever mixes any like it, basically the same recipe, who, or whoever puts anyone, any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people, so I, I don't know, and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I think it's only happened two or three times. I've been at someone's house, and something tastes really good, and I, I would hear this, or I would say this, hey, can I have the recipe for this? And they don't give it. Is anybody, I'm not gonna ask you to share an example. Has anyone else heard of that or experienced that? And I remember thinking, what? Well, a recipe sometimes gets passed on to family members, and they don't want to just share it with anyone. They don't. It's somewhat just for them, and it's something they make on their special thing. And so you guys have your special food, depending where you came from. Unfortunately, my family's from Ireland, so there's just a lot of cabbage involved, and you all can have that recipe and cook it in your own houses. Because I, the smell of that, just about made me denounce my heritage. My dad would cook that sauerkraut and all that. We had to put it on the porch. It was bad. So you can have that recipe. But some of you may have recipes that are special things that you do and you just didn't want anyone. The only precious thing that our family has, because good Irish food is just getting good at other nations' food. So in our house what Kirsten can make is this chicken tinga, which some of you have, which is a recipe from the Sonoran Desert where we are in Mexico. And we share that, but you have to do it the right way. you know. So I get a little bit of that. So this is oil that can only be mixed for this purpose, and you're not supposed to go make it just because you like the smell of it. Doesn't matter how much you like the smell of it, God does not want you sharing it. So think about God a little bit, and as we get into some of the kingdom teaching, a good way, Jesus says, seeks to seek first the kingdom of God. You have to know the person and the kingdom you're seeking before you can seek it. And there's a lot we can learn about what's important to God by looking at the Old Testament. If you come to my place, you will see what's important to me. You'll walk outside and you'll see all the stuff I like to do with the farm and the animals and, and learn more about me by my farm set up. You'll learn things about people by their houses, whether they have books in them or not, or instruments, or art, or those kind of things. This is our chance to look into God's kingdom. God likes oil. He writes the whole thing about it, the oil. And so Jesus comes, and this would be, he likes oil. So there's some oil coming, and this woman brings oil. Other people, few people brought oil to God. I like chocolate chip cookies. If people bring me chocolate chip cookies, I appreciate it. There is something going on. When you think of Jesus, uh, I would encourage you just to think of how joyful the incarnation was for him. Think how much he enjoyed just working and and being outside and working with his hands and sitting around and being part of The communication, the storytelling, the food, the music, the smells of things. He didn't have to give us five senses. He could have skipped a few. But smelling is one of the things he gave us, and he got to smell the oil in this very house. And that may have meant a lot to him, just just the fact that someone brought him oil. So as we look at what happens, though, it um, it doesn't sit well with the rest of the group. Um, it's kind of awkward for them. But what we see in her is she's willing to go through a process of repentance. And so when you imagine the scene, think about uh, the nerve and the courage it took for her to walk into that house. She didn't need anyone to tell her she wasn't welcome. She could figure that out. She comes in. She could have just dropped off a thank you note you know, snuck it in. But she chooses to do something that takes a while. And so she's showing this repentance because we find out later this woman's history a little more. But the concept of repentance is this sorrow aspect and that's what we see in her. And there's a heartfelt sorrow here, not just a sorrow that you've gotten caught. I was sorrowful sometimes as a child, more because I got caught than over what I did and so there's a distinction there, and in 2 Corinthians 7, um, 9 through 10, it talks about the sorrow of the world produces death, and there's another kind of sorrow that leads to repentance, and so in our own lives, as we experience sorrow over our sin and things that we do, we want that sorrow to lead to repentance, because if you don't, go down that road of repenting it leads to bitterness it really does you get hardened and 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 you may have picked it up in your own life or you may have interacted with someone that they have sinned so much that they really are hardened that the bitterness has become part of who they are and they view people and themselves and the world based on because that sorrow has worldly sorrow and worldly Just this sorrow is just because they got caught or it didn't work out like they thought. We want to have a different kind of sorrow when we hit things that cause us to repent that sorrow that brings about the transformation of our souls. And so, this woman is definitely demonstrating this repentance um, the deep one, the deep one. Okay, and then just to let you know, most of the there's a lot of content on the last slide here, so. It'll seem like I'm skipping through some of these ones, but the the last one has a lot to it. And it says, now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he spoke uh, to himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is and who he is touching, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, teacher, say it. And that little teacher thing is an important, um, important word. So imagine you are uh, hosting a party, and then something starts to go awry, like um, as simple as the room's getting too hot or um, there's too much noise going on or smoke is, like, filling the room because something's cooking a little too much. As the host, you feel like you need to address it. This Pharisee invited a lot of people. They're at his house. Something is going on that he can see, probably, I would imagine if we were in that room, we would become a little socially uncomfortable with what was going on. So you can imagine as the host, looking around, again, if he was married, I mentioned this before, he may have gotten some eye signals from his wife, like, do something now, Um I don't want this woman in my house. You know, some something like that. All nonverbal, most likely, but um, but clear nonetheless. And so he's looking around. You know, he's thinking, oh, what can I do? I mean, she's starting to wipe the, you know, the feet. With her, can I get a towel? Can we at least do this with it? With a towel? Think about how long it was taking. What's Jesus doing? It's not again. It's not a split second transaction. He is he eating? Does he just keep eating while this is going on? Is he talking? Have you ever been with someone, something embarrassing is going on, and they just keep talking through it as if nothing to you? I've been accused of that as a parent when my kids were little. I could surprisingly talk, and the child could be doing all sorts of things, and I could be in the zone and talk. Was Jesus like that? Was he like me? Where I, my kids were needing all sorts of stuff, and I was just locked in on whatever. I don't know, but it was taking a while. Just imagine, imagine being the person next to Jesus with this woman directly behind you. I mean, do you just keep pretending? Do, I, what, do you turn around and look? I mean, can I help you? Can I do one? Can we speed this up? I mean, think about being in that room. Uh, who knows, the perfume, I like perfume, not really that much. That's too strong for me. I, I probably would have been, you know, I don't know if some of you react to like strong smells and you're just in there thinking, "How? I don't think I can stand this. Imagine the eye contact with other people at the table. You, the, the first poor person that's right next to Jesus is probably looking at other people and other ones are, I'm just glad I'm not you. I mean, you know, so it, just put yourself in there. And then the Pharisee's trying to figure out. He's got two problems. One, he's got this very odd scene going on in his house. He knows this is probably the last time that he's going to be able to have friends over for a while, you know. He spoke up for Jesus probably, and now this is going on. And his other problem is deeper. He's thinking, I was kind of, ho- I, I would, I'm putting this on this guy, but he seems to be hopeful in who Jesus is, so he now he's backing down off of that because you probably heard what others have said, and he is now backing down. And you see this thought: if he were a prophet, so up until this point, they're the highest person human they can really imagine is a prophet. And Luke takes this train and he uses he really uh, demonstrates Jesus is in the line of the prophets you got Elijah, Elisha, you've got um, Isaiah. So Jesus is in that line. You've got John the Baptist, all showing that line. So that is kind of the acceptable track. I mean, if people are trying to figure out um, who you are or what you are, they're trying to put you in a box. And I've had that with people saying, oh, what are you? You know, as I've been in different countries, are you a missionary? Are they trying to put me in a box? Trying to put Jesus in a box, prophet is the only one that loosely fits. So this guy had him in the prophet box. He's okay with it, even though his friends aren't so sure about it. And he's working that. And now he's got a problem because he's saying, oh, he doesn't fit the prophet thing either. Because I know, and there's passages like Ezekiel 22. 22 so it talks about you, you ought to be able to discern. The prophets couldn't discern between clean and unclean. This guy, if he were a prophet, one of the most basic things is knowing the difference between clean and unclean, and this woman's unclean, and if so, then he can't be a prophet. It's just logically a logical deduction. And we may, the term sinner for us, um, I would say in our culture, it's probably more acceptable to say that I'm just a sinner or nobody's perfect. There's those kind of thinking that we're. I would say more aware maybe, and this is just a guess, but then the Pharisee may not have been thinking of himself as a sinner. And by a sinner here, I think the scripture means someone who's like chosen course is sinning, like repeatedly doing things like being a prostitute or a drug dealer or those kind of things. So I think she's in that, that crowd. And so Simon now, he, the, this is so obvious, and he's oblivious to it. So now he's trying to figure out what to do. And so Jesus picks up on the social uncomfortability of this guy, and he says, I have something to say to you. And he says, teacher, say it. And I, <clears throat> there's sarcasm, a uh, little bit uh, mocking that happens when Jesus is on the cross. When he's up on the cross, and they, and they mock him. You remember that about, you know, if you take yourself down, all that stuff. I don't think he's doing that. I think when he uses the word teacher, it's truly a compliment. And it leads into this next thing, and and Jesus said, I have something to say to you, and that's a permission thing. Um, I have something to say. Will you receive it? And he says, teacher, say it. So door opens. Jesus proceed. He could have said, no, um, can we cut this short? Do you mind taking the perfume lady and your friends and take it to go here? Because I'm done with this. He didn't. He's still smells like perfume still a little awkward in there and and he's up for being top and so Jesus tells his story and then just as a style of teaching storytelling is the best way to encapsulate truth because it preserves it in the human mind and and for years and years, you can hold your stories. So Jesus, that's why I told so many stories, wraps his truth in the story. And then the question idea. Um, We have questions, but they use questions a little bit more. And we have several educators in this room. You know that if a student can come to their own conclusion it sticks better than if you give them the answer. So Jesus is drawing them into the story, and you'll see him do that throughout um, the Gospels because the story catches you off guard. He, he says, I'm going to say something to you, and so Simon's ready. Imagine if you were thinking this guy was a prophet, and he's in front of your, your, your face, and he's got something to say to you. You might be relieved if he goes and talks about these creditors, like, whew, I thought he was going to call out my sin right in front of everyone. I mean, he could have. So he tells this story about these creditors, and it's a short story, but it draws you in, and and we know that a denarius was was a daily wage, so it's not like tons and tons of money, but 500 days' work versus 50, and then you have this idea of this question. um, He says, which one of them, therefore tell me which one of them loved him more and Simon says, I suppose the one who forgave more. And Jesus says, you're right. So now he's drawn Simon in. Simon is in. He's, he's in the story. He's put himself in the story, because now he's judged. And so the next part of it, now it's getting even a little intense. Now, Jesus is turning it up. Or when he started it, something to say, I'm going to tell you a story. Simon's OK. Now he's cranking it up. Now he's turning the dial a little bit towards Simon. And so he says to uh, says to Simon, "Look, you see this woman? Of course he sees this woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water. She's washed her or my feet with her tears and her hair. It wasn't apparently expected that you would wash your guest's feet, but it was a nice thing to do. And certainly, it seems as if it were something of honor. Like if you really thought you had an honored guest, you would see to the fact that his feet are dusty, and that." isn't addressed. So Jesus just comes in and there's no kiss there. That was part of the custom too, you know, that you would, the point that Jesus is going through is you didn't really treat me as an honored guest. And this woman did. Jesus does a lot of that flipping um, because he'll catch you in this story. He'll catch you in it, ourselves as well. And then he'll kind of flip it. And he does that with the, the Good Samaritan lots of others. And this one, uh, he points out, look, you, you didn't do it. Because you didn't do it, she did. And the idea of the anointing with oil, the concept is just the king gets anointed. There's this sense of honor all the way through that is just really, really not happening. And he points out how this woman has followed through on something you didn't even do. So, now he talks about her sins, and he says, look, her sins, they're many, but they're forgiven, for she loved much. For whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And that's a little catchphrase, I think, in there, because we'll talk just how that that actually is a little bit of a, a hook as well. And so, he says to her, your sins are forgiven, and then it really cranks up. Okay, this guy, I wasn't sure he was a prophet, and I... Not real sure about that. Now he's jumping up to this God level, and it's really getting uncomfortable. So the idea of loved much. How many of you, well, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but the one of the first books I read as a believer um, was The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And what it is is uh, a magical bus ride. I'm not saying heaven is just like this, but it's, ju- it's a good picture of it. Um, and there's theological ramifications with purgatory and all that stuff. I'm not going there. What I am going for is he does a couple characters in there, and they can come up from hell, and they can go to heaven, and the surprising thing is most of them don't want to stay, and each chapter talks about a character and their experience, and they usually someone they knew before comes and meets them in this middle ground, and they talk, and the, the fascinating thing to me is that The one character who stays is someone that struggled with lust. He's a guy that struggled with lust. He ends up dying to it and then going up further. Some of the ones that didn't go, and one of them that didn't go was a mother who had lost a son, and her love for her son was more important to her than God. And so she loved much, but it wasn't the kind of pure love, even mother love, because she had focused just on him and even after he died the room had stayed like a, you know, a museum. She ignored her other kids and her husband. She really didn't pay attention to her own mother, but she kept saying mother love has to be pure, like there is nothing wrong with mother love. And C.S. Lewis brings out that even in that it can get off track. If you love much, and love is usually positive in the scripture, the loving is what we attach our soul to, and we can attach our souls to things that may be good things, but they are not done in a way that God would do. We constantly got to bring everything before the altar, and, and as life changes, there's no automatic pilot. Every day, things can adjust in our kingdoms and we that's we just need to keep bringing it before the Lord and repent if there are ways that we have given into some kind of putting something in God's place even if it's a job or a spouse or relationship or children even we have to constantly bring that before the Lord. And so there's a couple pictures of of this idea of forgiveness because he says look your sins are forgiven and I want to just encourage you to think about what that would really mean if you were able to feel that. Um, I know from talking to different people, and I know in my own life, I I have no problem intellectually receiving that truth that my sins are forgiven, but inside sometimes I still feel guilty, or something will remind me of that sin, and it'll just bring me down. And so there's just a lot of pictures in the scriptures that could could remind us. This is Psalm 130. I'm going to read three of them quickly. Psalm 130, it says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So marking iniquities. Our culture loves to mark iniquities and remind people from decades ago of how they failed. We love doing that in our culture will remember somebody for something they did 30, 40 years ago. But the Lord doesn't mark iniquities, and I'm very grateful. And Isaiah, this is 24, 43, 24, and 25. But you have burdened me with your sins. This is God talking. You have wearied me with your iniquities. But I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So if God blots them out, they're gone. If he doesn't remember them, they're gone. And you may catch yourself still holding on to it, and you're like someone who's working the the later shift, and the owner of the restaurant says, you can go home and you're like, no, 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 I'm just going to keep working, and the boss like, no, you can go home. Nope, 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 I'm going to work. The boss is telling you, go home. Don't worry about it. The boss is telling you, if you confess your sins, he pardons them. Don't worry about it. I blotted them out. They are not there. That is a beauty that we may not be fully realizing, but I hope through worship and just pushing that out. We could walk in that. I, I, I just sense that the, um, even among Christians, that they don't really live in that. There is just this weight of sins that have been forgiven, and we want to be free of that. And the other one is Isaiah 53. Um, first I'll read verse 6, and then I'll actually hop up to verse 5. It says, "But um, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him... The iniquity of it all, of us all, and then verse five, it says, "But he was wounded for our transgressions; he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed." So um, I have sheep, uh, as you know, many of you know, and last night I was trying to put them away after dark, and I had this one that just runs. That's like her job. It's dark. It was like ten at night. Took off, and it's like. I was so frustrated. I said, could you not follow me? I have food, just follow me. But sheep just run their own way. We are like that. We run. When things don't go well, some of times our first reaction is to run from the Lord. And it, we run our own way. And that gets us into trouble. Knowing that the Lord is the, our shepherd, there are key times that we need to look to the shepherd. And you need to know yourself. There are certain times I really need to look to the shepherd, like I shared last week about being in the subway in New York and getting stressed, but all that stuff. That's a time I need to look to the Lord and not run my own way and like say something to my family members. That's not going to be my best moment. So when you feel like whatever it is for you that starts to get you bolting, that's the time to look to the shepherd and say, Lord... I'm starting to go my own way here. I'm getting frustrated. I can't find my whatever that I sat down right here, or these children's shoes are in the hallway again. You know, whatever it is that sets you off. And Jimmy, you know what I'm thinking about? Because I saw Jimmy at the tractor store yesterday, and we talked about how when we can't find a tool that we own because somebody put stuff, there's just this, those are moments when I really need to look to the shepherd and repent because we're all in this. And some of you are much better humans than I am, but I am regularly ready to bolt as a sheep and go down something that I'm going to have to ask forgiveness of the Lord and maybe someone else as well. We want to walk with the Lord and just keep that spirit of repentance ready at hand. All right. So um, he talks about this piece right here where her sins are forgiven. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna end here uh, with this concept of I'm gonna jump down to the your faith has saved you Uh, go in peace. Some concepts for saving faith. This is just what I want to leave with you. It takes three things to have in mind. One of them is you need to have knowledge. You need to know what it is that your your faith is in, and. Romans talks about um, how can we believe in him whom we have never heard. But knowledge is not enough, because James says the demons know good, but they shudder. So knowledge alone is not enough. You need knowledge and approval. You need to assent to it mentally. But even that's not enough, because Nicodemus, you see some of that. Um, you also see at the end of Acts, King Agrippa, who there's this interaction where um where Paul says, you know, I know you believe the prophets to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa says, in a short time you'll make me a Christian, but he's not yet. So just knowing and approving isn't enough. There's this trust piece, and it's trusting in a living person who's alive right now that he'll forgive your sins and and open the door to eternal life right now. That's what we're doing when we come on Sunday mornings. We are coming in to stand in the presence of the living God. Each of us is invited to do business. A week is a long time. I can go astray several times in the week. I remember when we were teaching, uh, we were teaching the kingdom of God years ago and some of you were in middle school and I had a mom who was uh, uh, one of the group leaders. She didn't show up and she called me the next day and she said, sorry, um, my son had a soccer game. The ref made a couple questionable calls. I lost it, and I was living outside the kingdom entirely, and I was so mad, I figured I'd just stay there for a while, so I skipped Bible study. There are times where we just woo, get off. Um, we get to come once a week. It's not the only time, but it's the main time where you get to worship and do business with the Lord, and repent, and reaffirm your saving faith that has brought you this great gift through God's power, and it comes from the Lord, and we'd be nowhere if he didn't love us first. It's an invitation that we have to live life in the kingdom now, but it takes that constant cycling through that repentance. Um, It's just going to for most of us, and so I'm going to pray for us, and then, uh, Johnny, do you um, want to come up? while I'm praying with your team. Lord, thank you for this passage. It's, it's a heavy one. It's not one that is easy to teach because all of us have sin. We know from the scriptures that every one of us has turned astray. And so as I spoke, it could have been that in people's minds in this room, that sins came up or hearts were made heavy through recognizing that we, too, are like this woman. I pray that you would move in us, that we wouldn't leave here today without working through that, Lord. The prayer team is here to pray. We don't want to have worldly repentance, that sorrow that is only because of the consequences, Lord. We want to have the godly sorrow that leads to the repentance, that leads to life in the kingdom. You know that we are sinners and very, very capable of sinning over the stupidest things. I thank you for coming to this earth. I thank you for leaving us with these stories of real people in a real house who spoke and acted very specific ways on a specific day. Thank you for breaking into this world and allowing us to see who you are, that you are the forgiving God, the patient God, the be with God who wants to be with us and wants to invite us into the richest life imaginable. Lord, fill us with joy today as we go out. May we feel the joy of our salvation anew. In Jesus' name, amen.